The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. So before we get into the sermon time, I want to highlight two things. One is, did you notice how um, neat and clean everything is around here when you came in today? Um, It looks great around here, and that is as a result of uh, a number of people. Do you know how many we had total, Angela, yesterday? It was like over a dozen, right? People here working at our workday yesterday, and I want to say thank you to all of you who did that, and especially thank you to Angela who organized it, and Dan who, by virtue of being married to the organizer, uh, was here all day, longer than I was. Um, But we got a ton of stuff done around the building, got it ready for summer, and uh, I want to say thanks to all of you who came out to do that. The other thing is, and maybe Brian, you can fire this slide just really briefly for our annual meeting. I want, um, because I know that sometimes the announcement time is just, it it gets lost, but we have our annual meeting a week from Wednesday. It's May 30th. Now, if you are a member of Artisan Church we really, really need you to be here for that. Um, we don't place a lot of like, guilt trips on people about that kind of thing, but uh, if you're a member, we expect you to be there. There's a, a couple of fairly significant votes that are happening at that meeting, so we'd love to have all the input of the membership as possible. And if you're not a member, you are more than welcome to attend that. It's not a private meeting. It's, it's actually probably half family time, fun, and half business. Um, it's like the mullet of meetings. It's... Um, <laughs> It's party, it's, except backwards, there's party in the front and business in the back, but um, uh, we'd love to have you come for that, Wednesday, May 30th, we're, we have a, a potluck that will start eating around 6, 6.30, and then we'll uh, be underway with other stuff uh, by 7, probably. And it takes about an hour or so from that point, so it's not a, not a real late night either. Okay, that being said, let's look in, at... at um, our passage from John here this morning. We are in the second week of this new series that I'm doing uh, called Signs of Faith, Experiencing John's Gospel. And the idea with this, if you weren't here last week, is that we're going to actually go through the entire book of the Bible, or uh, the entire book, this entire book of the Bible, the Gospel of John. We're not going to do it all at once because that would take months, Um, but we're going to do several weeks at a time and then we'll take a break and do something else, but we'll come back to it and pick up right where we left off. The idea is that whenever we're finished with this, um, that we'll have looked at the entire book in, in a fair amount of detail. And so I'd encourage you to be reading along in your own Bibles. You can go to our website, and I'll try to remember to put it on our Facebook page to find the passage that we're looking at in the upcoming week, but it's always good to have that in the back of your mind. So I want to ask you uh, a question, kind of like a hypothetical scenario, and then tell you a little story about my religious upbringing, and then we'll, then we'll jump into the passage. But here's the question. Let's imagine that you are trying to get through a dense forest or a jungle or something like that, and uh, there's no roads or anything, and you have to, you have to get from one side of it to the other. Uh, maybe there's like a hamburger on the other side or something. Um, so, and you really like hamburgers. Uh, what are some of the things that you have to do to, to get through there? What are some of the problems in your way if you have a... Right, so, so there's trees, and what are you going to do with the trees? 
You cut them down. That's right. We don't need that wood. Carbon dioxide. Pfft. Oxygen. So, okay, so you might have to cut some trees. Now, we're making a road through here. I said it backwards, didn't I? Thank you, biology nerd. Uh, you might, if you're going to make a road through, you might have to cut down some trees. What other problems might you have? What would you do if, if it's a forest or a jungle or something? Okay, animals. You might have to uh, look out for them, right? Okay. Or kill them. I don't know. <laughs> swamps. What do you do with a swamp if you have to get across a swamp? In our case, mow it. You have one in your backyard. You just mow it. All right, so you might have to fill in a swamp. I don't know. Calder, you have, a, you have an answer for me? Poison ivy. That would be a dangerous obstacle along the way, wouldn't it? Are you allergic to poison ivy really bad? Have you ever gotten it before? You just don't like it. No. It doesn't taste very good. Um, <laughs> I don't like anything that I can't eat, he said. <laughs> so maybe you've got your machete. Maybe there's rocks and boulders and things. You have to, if you move them, you can't move them. Maybe you have to go around them. You have to change the path. You have to change direction, that kind of thing. Okay, so this is a thought experiment, obviously. But I want you to hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Um, now, I also want to tell you this story about my own religious upbringing. Now, I was raised in a, a fairly conservative Christian church. Um, and one of the things that was emphasized as very important from pretty early on in my life, but especially when I got into junior high and high school, was the idea of um, sharing your testimony um, and, and witnessing. This is a witness is, a, is actually a noun uh, but the church turned it into a verb. <laughs> um, and if you were raised in the church, you probably remember, or you've probably heard the term witness used that way. You have to witness to your friends. Uh, it simply means tell them about Jesus, which of course is something that I, I would encourage and uh, endorse. But the way that they went about it, <coughs> the way they went about it at my church growing up was not necessarily super helpful, I don't think. Let me tell you how it went. First thing they'd do is they'd say, I want you to visualize your friends who don't know Jesus. I want, you to, I want you to think about them and have them in front of your mind. And once you had that person in your mind, they would, they would teach you all kinds of um, tips and tricks uh, of persuasion and argumentation so that you could um, convince that person of their need for Jesus and, uh, and save them or get them saved. And some of the, even some of the language around this, if I, looking back, it didn't mean anything to me at the time, but some of the language around this as I look at it now, it's a little disconcerting. It would say things like, you have to win souls for Jesus, like, uh, like it was some contest or, or sporting event. Um, you know, get, get your friends saved. And, the, and I'll talk in a little bit about why that some of those... Some of the, the way those words are framed just wasn't helpful to me. But suffice it to say that I never really did this um, growing up. To me, it seemed um, like impossible and almost pointless to, to bother doing some of the things they were saying because they would, t- they would teach you these little drawings that you could make on napkins and like, they'd say, then your friend will believe in Jesus, I'm like, well, I've met my friends, and I don't think that napkins are going to be the thing that convinces them. 
You know, and I, I want to be careful I don't, don't disparage people's honest attempts to share their faith. Um, but for me, I'll just say for me, it seemed very phony and artificial and um, sort of detached from reality. I don't know. Did anybody else who grew up in the church feel this way at all? Okay, see some hands. Um, okay, so you've got the, the wilderness road thing in your head, and you've got this story from my past, and some of you, it's a story from your past as well in your head. Um, but I want to move on to the passage, and the, the first thing that I'd like to do is read one verse in the middle. Now, um, I forgot to bring one of these Bibles up with me, so I'm just going to stroll over here and get one. This one here, thanks. The passage is uh, John chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1. The verses are 19 through 34. And uh, if you'd like to follow along, we're going to read the whole passage in a minute. You can follow along in the Red Bibles on page 862. If you brought your own Bible, I'd, um, you know, you get a gold star. Because actually, I, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to bring it with you on Sundays and not just rely on one of these, because I'd like you to get involved with your own book, if you can. So as I said, I want to read just one verse from the middle of this, because this sets things up. So it's 19 through 34, but I want to read verse 28, because verse 28 tells us the setting for this story, it tells us where it happened. John 1, 28 says, this took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, before we read the whole passage, I'm going to give you a brief geography lesson. No, I'm not kidding. Um, I'm actually going to give you a geography lesson. I promise this will be relevant and that it will only take a minute. Okay, so uh, this is a map here of Israel and the surrounding areas. And you can see on the left, which is the west, the uh, eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so if you know your geography at all, you know kind of where that is. Right? Now, the most important place in Israel is Jerusalem, the holy city, which is pointed out on the map behind me. Um, now, this text in 28 says uh, this took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So the Jordan is a river, um, and the Jordan River connects the, uh, the Sea of Galilee at the top with the Dead Sea at the bottom there. That's the Jordan River. Now, Bethany is a little trickier because there's two New Testament locations in Bethany. The one that we are talking about, we're estimating, is right where that arrow is pointing. But if you can see um, under the Jerusalem arrow... There's a, you can see Bethany there as well. Now, that Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. That's not the one we're talking about in this case. The Bethany we're talking about is pretty far away from Jerusalem. It's about 20 miles or so from Jerusalem to the northern shore of the Dead Sea. And Bethany's on the other side of the river somewhere. That's sort of an estimate that this particular um, map maker, cartographer, uh, has given us. Um, so on foot... If you were to go from Jerusalem to Bethany, which in foot was probably your, your best option, uh, it would probably take you a good, solid day to get there from the holy city to wherever John was baptizing people and where the events of today's passage, passage happened. Now, that will be important in a minute. Um, so I wanted to get that um, said before we begin. Now, let's jump to the passage and read the whole thing. I'll read this to you, starting in verse 19. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? I'll pause for just a minute because I, I, 
I don't, sometimes if you are unfamiliar with this text, you would read that and say, that sounds kind of vaguely anti-Semitic, like the Jews are a problem. Um, that's not what this means. When you read the Jews in the, in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, it generally means the Jewish leaders, uh, and in most cases, it's the very conservative Jewish leaders who uh, came to hate Jesus. Um, okay, so the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, remember, 20 miles away, to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. You notice how his answers are getting shorter and shorter? It's like he's getting irritated with them. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees, again one of the conservative religious teacher sects there. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John is doing the thing that I was taught that I was supposed to do growing up in the church. You see words like testimony and testify and witness. And even in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Again, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So John's giving testimony, but he's not doing it the way that I was taught to do it in Sunday school and youth group. And so what I want to do uh, is for just a few minutes, take a look at how John did it, how he gave his testimony, uh, which is one of those phrases that you hear, how he witnessed, if you want to use the verb form, uh, to people about Jesus. And I think what we'll come up with is actually that John is a pretty good model for us as we think about how we might want to give testimony and be witnesses of Jesus. So here's just a few observations about the way John went about this. The first thing is the geography lesson. He was far away from Jerusalem. Well, big deal. Except that Jerusalem was the absolute epicenter of religious life and worship and practice for Jewish people.
if you were writing this story, if you were playing God and saying, okay, these are my chosen people, they have Jerusalem, they have the holy temple, it's kind of been destroyed, but they're rebuilding it, this is where all the sacrifices happen, this is where everything goes down, where would you send the Messiah or the one who's going to announce the Messiah? Like Jerusalem, right? That's not where John was. He was at least 20 miles away on the other side of a river in the wilderness. Now, I actually have a a photograph of the Jordan River. Now, if you thought the Genesee River was brown, our river is brown and nasty, but that Jordan River, that's that's even worse. Um, And actually, there's another photograph I have. This is... uh, this is a chapel that has been set up um, by Christians because they, they think this is, the, this is the actual place along the river where John baptized Jesus. Um, so even with this modern-day structure here, but especially with the one before where there's nothing, uh, it's a far, far cry from what you'd expect. It's not gold and jewels and a courtyard and a place for sacrifices. It's a muddy riverbank with weeds and dust. It's not a place to get clean, <laughs> even though the baptism is, is a cleansing. It's, it's sort of a place where you'd get dirty. It doesn't seem at all like a holy place. Even, even those of us who are prone toward the I see God and the beauty of nature kind of thing, and I'm one of them, uh, the Jordan River, eh, not probably the place that I, I mean, there's other, other places, right? <laughs> A far cry from the holy temple of Jerusalem, but that is where John was preparing people to meet Jesus. So that's the first thing. It was far away from the temple. The second thing is that John didn't do it in a way that was at all by the book. It was not at all how the insiders would have done this. If you were a religious Jewish leader and you were getting ready to announce the Messiah, you would not do it in the way that John's doing. Uh, in fact, he, what he was doing is actually upsetting the religious leaders and the religious establishment. Because they sent this delegation a day's journey away to find out what he's doing, to investigate and really interrogate him is what happens. So they didn't like it when an unofficial teacher started drawing a crowd and gaining a following. So they demanded to know who he was. Now, the way they asked the question is, Sort of innocuous. I, I read a subtext of accusation in these questions, but they ask them in a way, and usually this is how religious people ask accusing questions. They ask them in a way that sort of seems like they're just curious. Like maybe you are the Messiah. So are you? They said. And he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. And there's all kinds of prophecies in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures about how the Messiah would be announced. And so one of them is that Elijah, who had never died but had been taken up to heaven, would return to, uh, as a precursor to the Messiah. So they said, are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not Elijah. And then there's this other kind of idea of being a prophet. And he said, are you the prophet? No, 
well, John, we're kind of running out of things that you could be, and it would still be acceptable for you to be doing this right now. And so there's this, this kind of accusation going on. And they, then they come to the point, and they say, if you're none of these things, why then are you baptizing people? Did you know that baptism um, actually predates Christianity? It's a very important sacrament of the Christian church, but uh, it was part of Jewish religious practice as well, and generally the people who would be baptized as a symbolic moment of their being cleansed and made holy and clean were Gentiles. They were non-Jews, people who had not been born into the family of God, who were converting, and they would be baptized, and then if they were men, they would be circumcised, and then they would be full-fledged Jews. But who was John baptizing? It wasn't Gentiles. It was people who were already Jews, people who were already Jewish, people who were already in the club, who were already part of the establishment. He was baptizing them and calling them to repentance, to a, to a total life change, to a change of mindset. And that's not what you do if you're a Jewish leader in the early first century. That is not by the book, and the religious people did not like it at all. But that is how John was preparing people to meet Jesus. 20 miles, uh, 20 miles away, with this strange ritual that, had, that was misplaced and misapplied in a dirty brown river. So that's the second thing. He didn't do it by the book. And the third and most important uh, aspect of how John is being a witness, being a testimony, and I th- this is by far the most important, is that he had a very clear sense and was very direct about it that he was not the point. He knew who was the one, capital T, capital O, matrix style, the one. Aren't I cool? (laughs) I refer to 12-year-old movies. Yeah, baby. Um, He had no misconceptions about who was actually going to be the one to save the people. He said it several times in several different different ways. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the prophet. I'm not the second Elijah. No, no, no. It is not about me. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he actually was before me. (laughs) And this is where I find the problems with the way that I was taught to share my faith or to witness. And maybe it was... Very likely, it was probably my own issue. But tell me if you agree, those of you who grew up in this kind of religious culture, did it seem like it was maybe, maybe a little bit too much about you and your ability to be persuasive? If you draw the bridge thing just right and make a real pretty cross in the middle, like maybe make the sinning people have a motorbike or something, this is so inside baseball that <laughs> this was one of the drawings that they told you to make. If you do it just right, and you've got to practice, you practice with each other, 
if you're just persuasive enough, if you're just smart enough, if you just know the right apologetics answers and defenses to your faith, you can convince anybody that, that they need, well, Jesus, sure, but really, you just need to hone your skills. And, the, and so witnessing, as I understood it, very often ended up looking like the witness was actually the source of salvation. And this is the opposite of what John did. It's precisely the opposite of how John did it. Because John said no. Every time they tried to turn it on him, he said no. It's not me. Just wait. There's one coming. There's one among you even now. He is the one. He was not under any illusions about whether he was the kind of really the Savior. He was simply making a way to the Lord. As, as, as he said in that quotation from Isaiah, preparing a way in the wilderness. Preparing people to meet him. And when Jesus showed up the next day, John had done all this setup, all this preparation, and so he could say in verses 29 and 30, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I was talking about. And the more I looked at this passage this week, the more I was drawn to the metaphor that's inherent in the, in the uh, Isaiah quotation. John essentially sees his job as making a straight path in the wilderness so that people can find Jesus. So if we're to ask the question, what does it mean to be a John-like witness for Christ? We want to be like John the Baptist? Here's what I would say. Being a witness means clearing a path. Being a witness means clearing a path. And if you think of Christian testimony that way, as making a way for the Lord, as clearing a path removing obstacles so that a person or so that people can find him, that doesn't sound nearly so impossible, and it's not nearly as terrifying. When you realize and accept that it actually doesn't depend on you at all, and your skills of persuasion, that's quite a relief, isn't it? And when you see that witnessing, to use that verb form that I'm not terribly fond of, is it's so much more than just being in the room and being the person to lead your friend in a special prayer. When you realize that it's so much more than that, it frees you. It opens you up to almost endless possibilities of how to do this, of how to be a witness for Jesus. Think about this for a minute. What does it look like to make a path home in a spiritual wilderness. Now, we talked about what it might look like to make a path home in an actual literal wilderness with trees and uh, dangerous animals and poison ivy and swamps. What are some of the trees and dangerous animals and poison ivies and swamps that, that your friends who don't know Jesus might encounter as obstacles that would prevent them from finding him? That's an actual question. I'd like you to answer it. Yeah. 
spiritual abuse, sure. And that, I mean, we could talk for hours about what that might look like. Um, yeah. Public ridicule. So embarrassment about that kind of thing. Yeah. Addiction. Go ahead, shout them out. You don't need to raise your hand. Okay, um, somebody said hypocrisy, very concisely. Another person said public and loud Christians who are missing the point. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exclusion. Sort of like they might have found if they'd gone to the temple. <laughs> Politics. Politics and religion? <laughs> Never heard of such a thing. <clears throat> so you can... You, we, could, we could spend ten minutes talking about all the types of obstacles that are right now preventing your friends from even being able to see Jesus. So you could go to them with, a, you know, with the four spiritual laws or with a, a visualization of what salvation looks like um, or with a very long and well-rehearsed list of reasons why they should believe. But if there's obstacles in their place still, they're not even going to hear you. That's what I meant earlier when I said, I know my friends and I don't think a napkin is going to do it for them. Now, you know, I, I can't claim to have done this either at that time. I, I have to own the fact that I was, you know, I was not really willing to, to try to find a different way to do it. I just kind of skipped that part of being a Christian. Sometimes we still do that, don't we? Most of us kind of all the time skip that part of being a Christian. <laughs> Um, and so in conclusion what I'd like to do is I would like you to engage in a silent exercise it will only be so silent because the air conditioners are now on uh, and we won't turn them off until September probably Uh, but in as much silence as we can come up with what I'd like to ask you to do is actually the thing that I talked about at the beginning of my sermon that people ask me to do which I kind of hated I want you to imagine a friend of yours who doesn't know Jesus, to kind of say it, you know, in one fairly plain way. Now, remember the, remember the rule. If, if, uh, if, you don't, if you can't think of a friend, you probably are the friend. <laughs> it's like if you can't point the sucker out at the poker table, you are the sucker. <laughs> um, I, don't, I didn't intend to have a poker analogy in this sermon. I'm sorry. But and I, seriously, I want you to imagine a friend of yours who who you think might need to know Jesus and who doesn't. Okay, and you have that friend in your mind. And uh, instead of thinking about all the ways that you could persuade or convince him or her that they need to come to Jesus, what I want you to do is think about the specific obstacles that that person might face. Okay, so you have a person in mind. And you know that person's background and history and tendencies and the way they think and act and all those things. And, and so what are the specific obstacles that that person might have? And if, you, uh, if you'd like to jot down notes or something during this time, that's uh, probably a great idea, actually. Whatever, but whatever helps you process and remember this. So you've got your friend and you've got these specific obstacles that your friend faces, the specific type of spiritual wilderness that they might be lost in. And the last thing during this moment of silence, which I'll give you shortly, is I want you to think about some ways that you might be able to participate 
in making a path, in clearing a path through that person's wilderness. You are not, I, I need to tell you, you are not going to do the whole job yourself. You are not going to clear every obstacle. You are not going to convince your friend or, or uh, help your friend over every hurdle, to mix the metaphors, but maybe you could do one. Maybe that person uh, has a, a block that you had at one time and you could, you could just help with that one obstacle. It's, that's another thing that's freeing, isn't it? To think that you don't have to do everything. You don't have to take them from A all the way to Z. Maybe you need to get them from C to D. <laughs> and somebody else will, will, will get them to E and so forth. Okay, uh, so I'm going to give you two minutes of silence. I want you to think about your friend and that person's specific obstacles and if there's anything you can do to clear a path through that wilderness for them. So you've thought of your friend, and you've given some thought to the type of obstacles they face, the type of uh, things that keep them from having a clear path to meeting Jesus, and you've thought about what you might be able to do to help remove some of those obstacles or to help your friend around them. So there's just one question that remains, and that is very simply, will you do it? Let's pray. God, thank you for this wonderful example from your scriptures about John and the way in which he was able to be a witness to Jesus, the way in which he was able to testify and give testimony about the one who is the true Messiah, the true Savior of the world. As we look to the example of John, we are encouraged, God, to know that it's not about us. And as your Holy Spirit has brought friends to mind in this room this morning, um, we trust that, that maybe you've done that, maybe you've shown us those friends because it's our turn to help them get around an obstacle between them and Jesus. And so, God, we ask you for your courage, for your strength uh, as we take that step and do the, the honestly and truthfully scary thing of 
of trying to share Jesus with somebody. We pray most of all, God, that as we have those conversations and encounters, that it would be you speaking through us, that it would be your spirit uh, tugging on the heartstrings of our friends, that it would be Jesus himself who makes himself known and reveals himself to them. And in all those things, we want to give you thanks and glory. It's in his name that we pray and ask all this. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you as we continue to worship in song to come and take communion together. Um, this is our response to hearing the Word of God proclaimed. And uh, if you are following Jesus in this place, uh, even if you're kind of doing, you think, a terrible job at it, and probably especially if you think you're doing a terrible job at it, this is your place to respond. This is the Lord's table. Jesus instituted this sacrament of the church around the table with a bunch of people who were complete and utter mess-ups, to use the nice term, including one of them who was just hours away from betraying him to the authorities. And so uh, if you are seeking to follow him, you are welcome to come, and you ought to come. Uh, And you can tear off a piece of the bread, remembering his body broken for you, and dip it in either the wine or the juice, whatever's more appropriate for you and for your family, remembering his blood which was shed for the forgiveness of sins, and receive that as food for your souls, receive it as the body of our Lord, uh, and do it as an act of unity together. Um, Parents, uh, we probably will have kids being brought back down to the foyer there shortly, and so uh, if you'd like to have them take communion with you, you can. If you want to wait until after you're done to go get them, that's fine, but uh, we would ask you to collect them shortly, because we'd love to have them continue to worship in song with us. So um, the table is open for the rest of our service, and uh, I would ask you to respond to God, no matter what he might be saying to you, respond to him today.